This is Sleep On It. first series, we explore sleep and how it impacts those with ADHD. I spoke to nutritionist Sarah Osborne about the relationship between what we eat and how we sleep. She works specifically with people with ADHD and has an incredible knowledge of the intricacies of food and the science behind it. Joining me now is Sarah Osborne, who's a registered nutritionist. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm very well, thank you. Now, for those of the listeners who are not sure what a nutritionist does, what is it that you do in your day-to-day job? Uh, great question. As a bank-registered nutritionist, I specialise in working with clients at the moment on a one-to-one basis. And they will have approached me with a variety of concerns and I will help them identify some of the underlying causes of some of those concerns that may be related to uh, their nutrition or maybe some um, hormonal or biochemical imbalances that they have for a variety of reasons and help them to understand the role that food and nutrients play in overall health and to do with a variety of concerns that they may be experiencing. So it can actually cover a much broader area than people may think. So some of my work is around literally what people are eating, what they're buying and what they're eating and what they're putting in their mouths and why and understanding their macro and micronutrient status and calories and all the things that people probably think of as the role of a nutritionist. But much of the work that I do will be looking at the role of gut health in overall health. We'll be looking at the microbiome which people are a bit more familiar with these days. So what that means is that I'll be looking at how diverse or not diverse their communities of bacteria are in their gut and the impact that may be having on certain symptoms. I'll be looking at their absorption and their digestion, which is really important because we all know the adage, we are what we eat. But just as importantly, we are what we absorb and we are what we excrete. So nutritionists do tend to spend quite a bit of time talking about bowel movements and stools, etc. Because this is a really good way for us to look at the nutrient status of our clients and how well they are in fact digesting their food. And then I spend a lot of time looking at the role that nutrients play in other things like sleep and mood Um, skin health, hormone balance. So a whole variety of um, of areas like that. So it can be much more wide-reaching than people might at first think. So, and and I would have been one of those people, if you'd asked me about a nutritionist, who'd have probably said, yeah, you talk about food and diet and that's what you do. But it is, (laughs) isn't it? It's so much more than that. And and, and I've got to say, I did, my ears pricked up when you you study people's poo. Is that what you do as well? Not personally, oh. but I have sent plenty of people's poo no. off to a lab to be oh. studied. That's actually a big part of um, 
of the work I do, actually. There are, there are lots of functional testing companies now that can give us a huge amount of information. So, and my work, when I work exclusively with clients with ADHD and sometimes um, overlapping conditions, many of my clients will have had a late diagnosis of ADHD um, and will have experienced a variety of gut issues that have been persistent and chronic. So gut testing is a big part of the work that I do. So yes, I don't personally handle any of that, but I work with a couple of amazing labs that do. (laughs) And my job is just to interpret the results. That's wonderful. It's an important part, isn't it, of of, of our our health because you know you're right it's not just what you eat it's what comes out and what gets absorbed and the, the differences between them so now, now the question i'll be asking most people uh, in this podcast is what's your relationship with sleep like are you good are, you know do you go to bed regularly do you wake up regularly do you have good sleep health good habits before bedtime or are you you know kind of talking the talk but not necessarily walking the walk <laughs> that depends on on um on my circumstances very often so when I was completing my studies um a couple of years ago and I retrained I mean I was going through a period whereby there was lots more work than there were hours in the day to complete that then I did find myself tipping into some of those old habits of staying up later than I should I I am um there is some truth in the sort of understanding about the lark and the night owl. Um, there's some argument that, that there probably was an evolutionary advantage to having people that sort of could stay awake later. And uh, and some people, there's some evidence to show maybe do have access to melatonin later. Um, I'm actually not neurodivergent. I'm neurotypical, um, apparently. So, uh, but that said, I am a night owl. So I can quite easily tip into that sort of staying up later than I should, ignoring those signals about going to bed um, and working quite late uh, and doing with less sleep than I need. It does have to be in extreme circumstances. Generally speaking, I'm extremely conscious to make sure um, especially as a menopausal woman, it's particularly important that I'm getting the, the right quality of sleep. So um, it, it does tend to need to be when something pretty dramatic is happening that can tip me over. It pushes you into those bad habits again. Um, now, when, yes. when it comes to diet <laughs> and sleep, there's lots of information on the web, isn't there, about what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, what's good for you. Cheese, I think, is something that people will quite often talk about something you shouldn't have because it's bad for your sleep or if you have it certainly in the evenings. What I mean, what are the, the sort of the key nutritional things you should be doing to aid quality, not just quantity of sleep, but quality of sleep as well? Uh, well, that that's a really good question. Funnily enough, I was speaking to my, my husband last night and he said um, pretty much all he ever thought about before I started talking, obviously much more in the family about nutrition, um, uh, was to avoid cheese before bed because that is one of the things that that's talked about a lot. Um, and I think more and more people are starting to connect sort of food and sleep, but the, the role of a nutritionist is to make sure that the information that we give is evidence-based. Um, that's particularly important. So when we're looking at... Um, supporting our clients with sleep. It is very much about what the research told us, um, uh, what the studies told us about um, about the connection between nutrients and sleep. So what we do know, what's well established is that food can affect our sleep. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And that speaking in general terms, better food will result in better sleep. Um, 
that needs to be our sort of baseline understanding before we start skipping to is the cheese that I'm eating late at night the thing that's affecting my sleep. If your diet has been, generally speaking, quite good, um, uh, then a little bit of cheese probably isn't going to have the same effect for somebody whose diet is also during the day very high in certain types of food compared to others. So what we do know from some, um, well, quite a good body of research and some some very good research recently in 2020 published in Nutrients is that we can take that as, as quite safe knowledge that the better the diet, the better the sleep, generally speaking, and that that's where we should be sort of looking at positioning ourselves as opposed to picking out particular supplements and molecules to use as sleep aids. They can be great additions but if we look at overall quality of food throughout the day, as opposed to what did I eat sort of just before I went to bed, that gives us a better idea of, of where we are in relationship between our, our diet and our sleep. So so the odd the odd bit of cheese, the odd, I don't know, nuts, whatever it is that people shouldn't be having, if, if that's one of them, that if, if their diet during the day is good, then it's not really such a problem. What So, so what is it about eating a healthy diet during the day that means you'll get a good night's sleep at night. What's the, the relationship uh, between the two? Yeah, well, we're, we're sort of looking at uh, different things here, aren't we? Are we talking about um, uh, sort of somebody who suffers from insomnia or has a sleep disorder? Or are we talking about somebody who's had something late at night and it's affected their sleep? Because they're two different things. Because yes, if you have got a, you know, healthy diet, for want of a better term, and you sort of going out and having something quite heavy and something you're not used to, maybe eating later than normal and richer food, especially around this time of year we're about to enter into, chances are it, it will affect your sleep. Um, alcohol, stimulants at late at night will definitely have an impact on sleep. But when we talk about chronic sleep disorders or insomnia, then it's more interesting to look at diet because then we can sort of start to identify what are the things in this person's habitual food patterns or diets that might be having an effect. Um, and that's when we can actually go into quite a bit of, of detail in the biochemistry um, because some of the reasons, as I'm sure you'll talk about in your charity a lot to do with sleep, will be... Um, to do with maybe neurotransmitter balance, hormone imbalance, blood sugar balance, all these things can have a huge impact on sleep and food can have a huge impact on those things. So the nutrients that we eat and absorb will have an impact on our neurotransmitter balance and on our blood sugar balance and on our hormone levels. So that's when we can start to look at it. Does this person have maybe a lack of certain nutrients? Are they maybe eating certain sorts of carbohydrates over others? So we we know from repeated studies that actually having carbohydrates in diet can be really beneficial in improving insomnia. But we're talking about certain sorts of carbohydrates, sort of complex carbs like refined like grains, um, legumes, vegetables, fruits, as opposed to a diet that's high in refined carbohydrates, sugars, biscuits, cakes, sweets, these sorts of things. These have been shown in studies to actually negatively affect our sleep. So we're looking, does this person have a really good balance of, you know, complex carbohydrates, good amounts of fats in diet, healthy fats in diet, really important, and the right amount of protein. Because sometimes appetite dysregulation and hunger 
are the reasons that some of my clients are experiencing difficulty sleeping. They've been eating during the day, but they haven't been nourished. They haven't had the correct quantities of of, um, healthy fats, for example, and proteins. So making sure we have a balanced diet is the cornerstone of of all health, really. But particularly when it comes to sleep, we'll be looking at, at missing macronutrients, first of all, before we start to look at is there adequate omega-3, vitamin D, zinc, magnesium, those really important nutrients for, for neurotransmitter health and hormone health. And, and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you talk about um, having the right, not not just eating, but, but having the right type of food. And actually, that's quite an interesting sort of um, correlation to not just sleeping, but having the right type of sleep as well. And presumably, the right diet will lead to the right sleep. But if, if someone has got into that place um, of bad bad diet, you know, maybe bad eating habits before bed. What kind of things can they do to to try and you know get themselves out of that bad place that they've got into? Yeah, um, in my clinic, because um, as I said, I work exclusively with clients who have ADHD. So it's particularly important that we approach any dietary changes in a very specific way. And I'm a big fan of what can we add in opposed to what can we take out. I find that kind of approach much more successful as opposed to giving a client a plan, which is cut out caffeine, cut out Coca-Cola. It's more about what can we start to add in or replace. So um, what you eat throughout the day is the first sort of place to look at. So looking at, am I am I getting adequate amounts of protein in my diet? Um, where what forms of protein am I am I having? Because the protein will then provide those amino acids that we need to make those really important um, neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and GABA um, and norepinephrine and the things that we know are, are important in sleep. And then, do I have a variety of different carbohydrates in my diet that will then break down into some of those really important molecules? So. Honestly, it sounds quite basic, but starting from there, making sure you have adequate protein and fats will will bring its own rewards in terms of those small changes. And then when you are tempted to have um, a carbohydrate-based snack, maybe have something with it that will help slow down the breakdown of, of those carbohydrates so that we don't get those insulin spikes that can then affect our sleep. Um There isn't really one answer because all my clients are different. For some of my clients, they need a carbohydrate-based snack before they go to bed because that's the reason they're struggling with sleep. Um, For other clients, having something to eat um, very late at night will disturb their sleep because their underlying causes are different. But there is some studies to show that eating certain things before bed can actually be beneficial in terms of helping with sleep. So one study showed that having a couple of kiwi fruits just before bed or having some cherry juice um, were particularly beneficial in terms of helping to reduce those sleep problems. So for our clients that really are struggling with sleep, those kind of things are worth trying because there actually is some good evidence base behind the efficacy of, of having those particular foods. So um, is it true, I mean, it's interesting, again, you talk about, or we're talking about the, the food stuff that we eat will determine how we sleep later, you know, the food mm-hmm. we eat during the day will affect our, our quantity and quality of sleep at night. Is it true as well that, and, and you know, there's so much information, isn't there, on the web, that it's hard to work out what stuff's mm-hmm. real and what stuff's not. Is, I'm sure I've read it somewhere is. that if, if you have poor sleep, actually you start to crave worse foods, carb, carb-rich foods, and actually it becomes yes. a bit of a vicious circle, doesn't it? If you're not eating so well, 
your sleep isn't as good, then your sleep isn't as good, so you start to eat badly. And it just goes on and on and on, and it's really difficult to break out of that. Uh, that That's true. And there are, um, there are again, biochemical reasons for that. So we are, our appetite, uh, and this is, this is particularly relevant in my client base. I talk about this an awful lot with my clients, particularly my clients who struggle with appetite, whether that's overeating or undereating. It will quite often come back down to sleep. So it's another way that nutrition and sleep are related. So we, we know that disrupted sleep, particularly persistent disrupted sleep, leads to some changes in the levels of hormones that govern appetite. So two particular hormones that are particularly important are ghrelin and leptin. And we can think of ghrelin as our hunger hormone. It's the one that will send the signal to our brain to say we need to eat. Um, And it's particularly important. I think sometimes people think that we just feel hungry and we don't. We're actually dependent on these hormones to send these signals to tell us um, as a species that's, that's existed and dominated on this planet, we've needed to go out and find food in some pretty hostile and difficult environments. And it's that hormone ghrelin that will make sure that we do that. And then another hormone kicks in called leptin afterwards to tell us, okay, you've had enough food now, you don't need to eat anymore. We're full, we feel full, we have that feeling of satiety. And we know that with persistent disrupted sleep, we have lower levels of one of those hormones and higher of another. So we know that we don't seem to get the same um, effect from leptin that we should do. So that little bit of leptin resistance um, can come in and we seem to see an increase in ghrelin. And we also see um, a decrease in insulin sensitivity. So insulin doesn't seem to be working as effectively when we have disrupted sleep. And that can lead to some of those blood sugar imbalances. And that can then lead to cravings, particularly for those carbohydrate foods. So we we do have that fairly well established in science now that, that that disrupted sleep definitely has a direct link with disrupted appetite, usually increased appetite, which can then go on to lead to an increased risk of that waist to hip mm. circumference. Um, which is how I, how I prefer to refer to uh, my clients who are approaching me for weight management mm. being their main concern. Mm. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier on in your line of work, you do a lot of work with ADHD clients. Nutrition, is that particularly important for people with ADHD as well? Um, it's important for all of us, obviously. Um, the approach I take when talking about nutrition and ADHD is the work I do is more with my clients about the way that their ADHD may be affecting their access to healthy food and nutrition, as opposed to how has nutrition had a, a role or a causative effect in ADHD, because we, we don't look at nutrition from that perspective. So the work I do with my clients is how is their ADHD, their executive functioning challenges, um, affecting their appetite, affecting their cravings, um, and also affecting their um, relationship with that gut-brain communication, which is accounts where I'd say 75% of the work I do is on improving my client's gut-brain access communication pathways, because that does seem to be disrupted. Certainly in my clinic, I, when I do gut testing or take a person's full case history, talking about things like leptin, ghrelin, listening to those signals, um, dopamine-seeking behaviours around food as well as other areas. It's that work I do. So it's more how is ADHD affecting your diet and your eating habits and your gut health than um, 
is it true that maybe people with ADHD have lower levels of, of zinc and, and of magnesium? Because we have some studies to show that, but it's about working on overall diet and make sure that my clients are accessing all the nutrients they need from a balanced diet. And that can actually be a real challenge when, when ADHD um, is, is diagnosed or undiagnosed. For many of my clients, that's actually quite difficult. Mm. And it's interesting. So, so food doesn't necessarily or doesn't really have much of an impact or causal impact on ADHD, but but people with ADHD have dietary challenges. Uh, what what is it about ADHD that, that that has that relationship with food? Is is it um, is it sort of an attention related thing? What what is it that causes that um, that 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 sort of different way of uh, of managing diet? Uh, well, we don't have one answer to that because you know I have two family members with ADHD, my my husband and my son, and they are very different people. And they have very different relationships with food, and even though they have persistent gut issues, they are different. Um, and with my clients, many of my clients um, really struggle to um, cook and prepare and shop. Um, for healthy foods and other uh, clients I have with ADHD are great cooks, great chefs. My my son is sort of runs our kitchen. He loves cooking. He loves preparing food. Um, we generally tend to eat very late. It's an absolute horrendous mess afterwards. And quite often by the time he's cooked the food, his appetite's gone and he won't eat it himself. So it's complex is, is the answer. Um, I'd say for more than 50% of my client base, the issues are around being able to deal with the amount of executive functioning that's needed to shop, plan, prepare, buy, and actually cook healthy meals. That's actually quite an involved process. There's lots of, of, of things involved in that. And um, we, we have those appetite regulation issues that I've spoken about, which I know many of my clients will either be feel that they are overeating or undereating, or they just don't have a regular appetite. So the way we've been brought up to have sort of breakfast, lunch and dinner, that just does not work for them. And that's absolutely fine. That's not necessary to follow that plan. Um, and um, and when my clients do enjoy cooking and do enjoy um, preparing food, um, there are other issues that can be around uh, food intolerances, which are really common with my clients, and digestive issues. Um, there is some studies to show that there are far more instances reported of IBS and acid reflux uh, episodes for um, clients who have ADHD. And this can start in childhood. So for me, it's about sort of finding out what are the underlying causes here? Do we have food intolerances? And is that what's driving some of these appetite issues? Is this a gut-brain connection issue that we can work on by starting with the gut? Because that um, imbalancing gut microflora can have a profound impact on those appetite signals. So it's all about working with that individual client, finding out whether they are simply a person who becomes so hyper-focused on a thing for a long period of time that they're missing those hunger signals and those hunger cues. They will emerge after several hours starving um, and craving something very, very quick in carbohydrate-based. It's readily available because the thought of, of cooking a meal at that point is just not going to happen. And then that has sort of become its own problem in terms of insulin sensitivity and an appetite dysregulation. So it's sort of peeling back and seeing mm. what's behind this in terms of those um, executive function um, behaviours and 
biochemistry, neurotransmitter imbalances, dopamine-seeking behaviours. Um, all of those things play into our relationship with food. And here's the probably the $6 million question. What what things can people do themselves, sort of self-coping strategies? What what can they do if if they're ADHD and if they're, they're struggling with their, their diet? Um, what, what kind of things can people do at home to, to try and deal mm-hmm. with that? Um, so there are there are lots of techniques that we use. Um, as a registered nutritionist, I have to be um, really conscious to not give very specific advice in this kind of format because in a in a when I'm with a client and I take a full case history, part of that is finding out about medications that they're taking, other supplements they may be taking, and underlying health conditions because any recommendations I make have to be. Um, personalised to that particular client, even certain foods that are recommended to the wrong person in the wrong way um, can create a problem rather than solve it. And that's certainly true of supplementation. But generally speaking, it's safe to say my sort of three things I focus on with my clients as a, as a baseline are um, making sure that you have adequate protein in your diet. I know I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I can't overstate it. And many of my clients aren't hitting their, their protein targets, which aren't as high as people think they are. I think the fitness industry is having, having us thinking we need to be having hundreds of grams of protein a day, and, and we really don't. But making sure that the meals that you're having and the snacks you're having do contain a source of protein will really help in lots of ways. Um, making sure you're adequately hydrated uh, will help us listen to those signals because oftentimes we think we might be hungry and in fact, we're just thirsty. And for many of my clients, remembering to drink that 1.5 to 2 litres of water a day is something we'll work on for the first couple of weeks by a variety of different techniques. Um, Flavouring water ourselves or having a water bottle and setting reminders on our phone can be really helpful. But once we start to adequately hydrate, a lot of things will start to improve um, attention, focus, appetite, gut health, skin health. So focusing on, on, on those two things and then just Avoiding a restrictive model, I think, is really important. Avoiding stepping into the temptation of, I will cut this out for a couple of weeks and see if that helps. Even though many of my clients are reliant on stimulants um, in food or in in, in drink form, um, it's about sort of looking at what can we replace very gently or, or add in so we can make sustainable changes that can last for a long time rather than following a fad. it's particularly important for my client group to avoid that restrictive model of eating because it can lead, it can tip quite easily into a sort of binging restrictive model. Um, Some studies show that more easily than the general population. So it's never about sort of what can we remove or take out. It's about what can we increase so that we get those good fats, those really good sort of where intolerances will allow where can we increase our access to nuts and seeds and things that we can just sort of add in um um, i've i've created a recipe book which makes getting those um access to those things very very easy so it's not something you have to sort of spend 20 minutes preparing it's simply opening a tin of tuna opening a tin of sort of beans mixing them together and, and having that as a quick snack rather than um a packet of crisps so that you are sort of hitting a couple of targets there without it needing to be something that feels very labour intensive mm. or expensive. And presumably the the approach of, of not restricting yourself to just cutting out something um, 
applies mm-hmm. to sleep health as well as ADHD and, in fact, your general health for, across the board. Yeah, I think it's generally good advice. You know, it, it, I work with, with clients um, with sleep problems very often in my clinic. And I, I sort of look at sort of that, that term insomnia, a little bit like IBS. It's just an umbrella term that describes lots of different causes and reasons. So it really is about understanding um, where possible, what is happening with me? Why Why is my appetite seen, why does it seem to be more than it should? Or why is my sleep disrupted? Why am I struggling to go to sleep? Or why am I struggling to stay asleep? Because they, that alone, they're two different reasons. And once I've identified whether somebody's struggling to stay asleep or get to sleep, we can sort of look at, oh, okay, well, that might be because of of this, because their underlying causes to those two things are are different. So it really is about sort of starting to get get some support and and get to the root causes of those issues before you start to look, you know, Google online, what food should I have to help me sleep? And so coming sadly to the end uh, of this chat, which is fascinating, it's such a diverse world, isn't it? The, the sort of the, the relationship is. with nutrition it and is. all aspects of our lives. If you could share one fact with our listeners around sleep, mm-hmm. nutrition, ADHD, what would be your fact to share with the, with the population? If I had to pick just one, it would probably be um, to get your vitamin D levels tested um, know your vitamin D levels, particularly for for so my client base. But generally speaking, in this country where we are um, in a northern hemisphere country, and we know that we aren't really getting adequate vitamin D, um, testing is a big part of my protocol. So um, testing not just vitamin D, but testing um, for uh, omega three levels as well, because making sure that you have adequate amounts of vitamin D and omega three. And the tests for these are quite readily available and accessible for people. Um, can can rule out some of the reasons that might be um, having a really serious impact on your health. We're actually seeing more vitamin D insufficiency and deficiency in this country. Um, and when I correct my clients' vitamin D status and sort of make sure they have adequate omega three, they are two of the real sort of game changer protocols we have in place when it comes to sleep, but also gut health, immune health, mood, everything. They are sort of my my two first ports of call, if you like. So um, find a way either through your GP or through you know, many of the, the great testing companies now, they're not invasive, they're easy to do, and they are so, so important. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. That's Sarah Osborne, a registered nutritionist, an all-round clever person. Thanks very much indeed. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. that fascinating to help you reflect on what we've just been talking about here's an immersive soundscape that's been specially composed for relaxation for those with adhd to learn more go to thesleepcharity.org.uk